0: Good morning, it's good to see everyone today. It's always a joy to be able to gather with the church family on a Sunday morning. It seems like these, these days come ever so quickly uh, throughout the week, but obviously in one sense not quick enough as well. But if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as you do, I want to think about how you'd answer this question, who are you? It's a simple question, isn't it? but it's a question full of complexity as well, of uh, who are you? Because think about it, if someone asks you the question, who are you, how are we prone to answer that question, like in, in the most simplest of forms? Somebody asks, says, hey, how, who are you? You're likely to give them your name. If somebody asks me that question, i like, well, I'm, I'm Jeremy, that's who I am. And now, but if they kind of push back on you a little bit and they say, no, 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 who, who are you, how are we prone to respond in that moment? Now, some of us may be like, man, who are you? Uh, and like, like walk away kind of like, who is this fool asking me this question about who I am? But now others of us may respond, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a friend, I'm a neighbor, I'm a co-worker, I'm, I'm, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, any number of titles that we could put forth. Maybe we give our, our occupation and we tell people what we do for, for a living. We may even just tell somebody our, our, our religious affiliation or lack thereof. Maybe somebody says, well, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I'm a, I'm a new age thinker, whatever that is, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. But let's just even say that you identify as a Christian, which I'm assuming the vast majority of us in this room do, identify ourselves as Christian in one shape or another. What, what does that mean? What are we really saying? How are we identifying ourselves when we define ourselves as a Christian? What, what does that mean? How does it being a Christian define who you are? And I'm not just talking about to the outside world, to all those who are looking out at, at your life, but how does your understanding of, of being a Christian, you being a Christian, define how you see yourself, how you know yourself, how you think about yourself, how you live the life that you've been given to live. Well, this question of who are you is the question that's kind of flowing through the message today. So picking up in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Now imagine imagine being the original recipients of this letter. And someone is reading it aloud to the gathered church assembly for everyone to hear, much like we would have today. Everyone's gathered together. Someone gets up. They begin to read this letter. And you hear these words that you know are from the Apostle Paul. And they're directed to you. They're directed to the person sitting next to you. They're directed to your family. And he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid that all the time that I spent with you may have been pointless. Imagine hearing those words from the Apostle Paul. It can't be easy to hear. Can't feel good to hear those words. Definitely gets their attention in that moment. This is a man who first told them about Christ. This is the man who first told them of the glorious good news of the gospel. He's their spiritual father in the faith, and he's saying, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That word "labored" there, definitely applying work, but providing the imagery of a mother having given birth to a child. Paul using the same language in verse 19 of the same chapter, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And we're going to look at that next week, but but to say I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain is like a mother telling her child, I may have gone through all the pains of childbirth for nothing because of you. Can you imagine? Hearing that from a mother? Can you imagine hearing that in this case from a spiritual father? I may have gone through all of this for, for nothing because of you. And the question is the question they have to answer is, is that true? Like, is this true? Is what Paul's saying true that this might have been everything that he went through in vain? And, church, this is a question that is not out of the question for us to wrestle with and have to answer to ourselves. But as it pertains to their context, to get a, a better grasp of what Paul's saying here, remember, Paul was stoned. Like, he came into these cities in Galatia, like Lystra, for example. He comes into Lystra, he faithfully preaches the gospel. And what do they do to him in Lystra? They stone him. They leave him for dead. And then he gets up by God's grace, by God's power. The next day makes his way to Derby, another city. What's he do there? He preaches the gospel faithfully there, sees disciples made, finishes his work in Derby after some time. And then what does he do? He goes back to Lystra to continue to teach them the gospel, to continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them. So he keeps teaching the gospel To these people in Galatia, why? Because he wants them to know Christ. He wants them so desperately to know Christ. But it's not just to know Christ. He also wants them to know who they are in Christ. Like what does it mean to be a Christian? He wants them to know this. But if they're turning from this gospel and believing a different gospel, a gospel of works, Paul's saying that if you're believing that, then I went through all of everything that I went through for no purpose at all. Are you telling me this is the case? But now before he gets to that question in verse 11, he takes the time as a loving spiritual father to once again explain who they are. He's telling them if you are in Christ, this is who you are. If if in fact you have believed in Jesus, if in fact you have believed in Jesus as, as your only hope in life and in death, he's saying church. Believers, this is who you are. Same applies to us. If, in fact, you are trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and death, the truth that we find coming off the text today, this is who you are, church. This is who you are. So number one, you, Christian, trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death, you are in Christ. Look with me at verse 25. Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, meaning we are no longer under the law. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus. Just pause right there. These are words that we can just pass over oh too quickly. For in Christ Jesus, positionally, that is legally, that's who we are. We're in Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death, you're in Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, think of the imagery Jesus himself uses in John 15. You may not be familiar with John 15, but he calls himself the vine, and he calls everyone who is following him the branches, those who believe in him. The branches of Jesus is the vine, and we who are in Christ are the branches of the vine, meaning our life, our existence, our identity, everything about us is intimately connected to Christ. He is our life support. We are connected to Christ in every way possible. Paul explaining how in three ways. So we have three subpoints from number one. One, if we are in Christ, we are children of God. And we're children how, church? Through faith. Paul being very clear, it's not about works, it's through faith. If we've received God's grace through faith, we are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we are children of God. It's not something to take lightly. We have been brought into the, the, the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters of God. We can't let this language just kind of go in one ear and out the other. We who are in Christ are adopted as children of God. This is who we are, children of God. Saying in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So speaking of the the spiritual work that, that has happened from the Spirit in our life, Meaning everyone who's been baptized into Christ Jesus has been baptized into his death. So again, the Spirit's work in our life, the Spirit's work of regeneration. But it's also putting forth the the very visible uh, imagery of believer's baptism, where believers enter into the baptismal water. We're we're buried in that water, buried into death. So we're immersed under the water because you immerse somebody under the water and you don't bring them back up, what's going to happen? You're gonna die, right? Like water judgment. You go under the water, you don't come back up, you're gonna die uh, there. And that's the imagery we have here of when you buried under the water, you're dead to your sin. But since Christ was raised from the dead, what happens to we who are in Christ? We are promised that one day the dead in Christ will rise. They will rise. So we'll rise up from that, that watery imagery here, this watery grave, to, to walk in the newness of life. We enter the, the water as a symbol of our former life, as a slave to sin, and we exit the, the water to live our new life in Christ. So believers' baptism, demonstrating physically what has already taken place spiritually in in the life of every believer, that we died to the law, we died to the guardian that was watching over us. We've been crucified to the world. We're now a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We, as the text says, have put on Christ. Very simply stated, church, we are children of God. Again, not something that we can take lightly here. We who were sinners, enemies of God, are children of God. And if we are in Christ, we are one in Christ. Second subpoint. Meaning, if we are one with Christ, we are one with everyone else who is one in Christ. We may be different branches, but we are all one in Christ. So, yes. You just look around this room and we all have our own personalities, don't we? We're all u- unique in all kinds of different ways. We all have different preferences, different likes, different dislikes. Again, unique. We're, there's nobody in this room that is, is a pre-programmed robot, right? Like All of us are, are, are going through life and making all kinds of preferential decisions. But when it comes to who we are in Christ, we are one. We are one, meaning the things that distinguish someone as different from the world or within the world, they do not distinguish us as different in the eyes of God. We need to be very clear in our understanding of this. This is what Paul just lists out and explains. that In Christ, that there's no distinction regarding ethnicity. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, which means racism must be repented of and not exist within the life of a Christian. No one is superior to another based upon the color of their skin or their ethnic heritage. Jew or Gentile, we are one in Christ. He also says, in Christ, there's no distinction regarding societal standing. There is neither slave nor free. The church is the place where people from every walk of life come together as one. So big bank account, no bank account. We are one in Christ. Side by side worshiping together. Side by side serving together. Side by side doing life together as the people of God. In Christ there is no distinction regarding gender. There is neither male nor female. Both men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Now, Scripture is clear that God gives different roles to both men and women in the life of the family and the life of the church, but there are no second-class Christians. If we are in Christ, we are all one in Christ. And here's how. Let's flesh this out just a little bit more with the realization that all people are equal in their need for salvation. All people are equal in their need for salvation. No no one person, whether Jew or Gentile, needs salvation more or less than anyone else. All people are born equally dead in their sin and under the judgment of God. And as such, all people are equal in their inability to earn their salvation. Whether Jew or Gentile, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing. Nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Follow the law all you want. Be the best person that you can possibly be. Do all kinds of kind stuff and social humanitarian kind of stuff. It will not save you. Why? Because you're not Jesus. You're not Jesus. All people, then thirdly there, all people are equal in how we're saved whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether male or female, we who are in Christ are saved exactly the same way. We hear the gospel and we receive salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Why? For there is no distinction. We are all one in Christ Jesus the only one that we can boast in when it comes to our salvation is who? Is Christ. Christ is all. Christ is the one that we can boast in, and he alone is the one that we can boast in. Application for this, massive. Like we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through the application here, but I'm thinking evangelistically, I'm thinking missionally. We are to take the gospel to all peoples and trust God. To do what only God can do. What he's promised to do. Because you remember the the promise that was made to Abraham? That that through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Yeah, about that. If we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. So that's the third sub-point there. If we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. Everyone who is in Christ... That is whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, is Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Meaning we are not only one in Christ with believers now. We're not just one with Christ with those of us in this room or those who are existing on this planet now. We're one in Christ with all believers throughout all of history. We are a part of the universal family of God. Now, second point, you Christian are not a slave. Now, it it seems like obvious, right? Like, okay, I'm not a slave. I I, I get that. But let's be honest here. That's something all of us need reminding of. We need to be reminded of this so often. So verses 1 through 3, Paul recounts a period of time of about 1,300 years. This is the time when the law served as a guardian over his people. So God promises Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Eventually, Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And during that time frame, God grows the nation of Israel from 70 people to somewhere around 2 million people. God delivers them from Egypt and then gives Moses, gives the people the law through Moses as an intermediary. And for roughly 1,300 years, the law serves as the guardian to those who received the promise that was made to Abraham. Meaning, the law did nothing to abolish or nullify the promise. Heirs of the promise always remained heirs of the promise. The law is serving as a guardian. To which Paul gives an illustration to help explain. Telling us of of a child who is an heir. So he could assume that he's a, an heir to a, a very large inheritance. But while he's a child, Paul says he's no different than a slave. And you gotta read that, and you're thinking, okay, how's this heir, child who's an heir, how is he no different than a slave? Well, until the date that is established by the father arrives, that is the date when he receives the inheritance, the date when he becomes a, a man, he's under a guardian. He's under Tutorage, tutoring and so so just like a slave child he's restricted by by rules and regulations he he functions as a child but those rules and regulations are only temporary for the heir because when the date set by the father arrives what happens the heir becomes free he becomes free. He receives the inheritance. He will receive his, his, his inheritance that has been promised to him. But even under the law, what has the heir always been? He's always been the heir. He has always been the heir to, of the promise. To which Paul says in verse 3, In the same way we also, Paul referring both to himself as a Jew and the Galatians that he's writing to as Gentiles. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world understood by some to refer to the law, understood by others to be referred to the demonic things of this world. I understand it a little bit of both. So whether it's the formal law that is given to the Jews or the the law written on the heart of all people, all people are spiritual slaves to the world prior to coming to faith in Christ. But if we are in Christ, church, if you are a child of God, you are not a slave anymore. You are not a slave anymore. Thus the use of the word were. Were children. Were enslaved. These are things that describe us no more. See, Paul's making the point that being under the law is a sign of spiritual immaturity. The law guarded. It taught. It served its purpose for 1,300 years. And it was good. It served a good purpose. Think of it like kindergarten, okay? Like kindergarten is good, right? Kindergarten serves an important purpose. It gives you the ABCs, it gives you the one, two, threes, but kindergarten's not intended to last for forever. There comes a point where you get your little like kindergarten cap and your little kindergarten gown and you graduate from kindergarten, like pomp and circumstance for kindergarten, right? You, you move on. Same with the law. It was good, but it, ser- it served its purpose. Now that Christ has come, we who are in Christ have graduated past the law. And we graduated not by works, but we graduated by grace, which is what's so confusing to Paul as it pertains to the Galatians. This is why he's perplexed here. Essentially, the false gospel that they're believing is one that has them turning back to the law. It has them turning back to works, has them going back to kindergarten, even though they've already graduated. And Paul's like, why? Have I labored in vain in all that I have done for you? If you are in Christ, it makes no sense for you to live like slaves. It's like someone with a Ph.D. going back to kindergarten. Like, why would they do that? And then he reminds them of what he did to fulfill the promise. He's saying, this is what I've done for you. This is what God has done for you. So two things God did in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. One, God sent forth his son. Remember verse 2. The date set by the Father in Paul's illustration. That date is in reference to verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. Meaning the exact predetermined day, the exact predetermined time, predetermined moment, predetermined location, God sent forth his Son. This wasn't reactionary. This wasn't plan B here at all. This was God's predetermined plan before creation was ever spoken into existence that at this exact moment, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the timeless one, would be sent from God the Father to enter into time and become human. Paul saying, born of woman. So the eternal Son of God became human, and he became human in every sense of the meaning of the word human, except without sin which is critically important because he was born under the law, meaning Jesus was circumcised according to the law. He was taught and trained under all the practices of the law. And he lived his entire life in perfect obedience to the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Jesus lived his entire life in perfect, active obedience to the law, obeying every law of God for the purpose of substituting his life for sinners, doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, we're reminded, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Why? Why does he do this? Other than it was for the will of the Father for him to do this. Paul tells us, so that we might receive adoption as sons so that we slaves to sin would be adopted as sons of God. Adoption being a legal standing before God that ties us ties inseparably with justification. Those who have been declared legally right before God through the atoning and redeeming work of, of Christ are the, at the exact same time adopted as children of God. And from that moment forward, we bear the name of Christ. We bear the name of of Christian. We are children of God. How? By faith in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing that we do here is by faith in Christ. God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But here's the thing, church. It's one thing to know this with our minds. We may go through all of this and you're sitting there thinking, check, I've heard this. Check, I I, I know that, Pastor, I I got that. So it's one thing to know that here, but it's another thing to believe it here. It's another thing to go through and be like, I am a child of God. Say that here. It's another thing to say that here. If you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you've probably probably wrestled with with, with doubts, with concerns. Like with perplexing thoughts and emotions, even wondering, like, am I really a child of God? Like, I I think I am, but I'm not confident that I am. Which is why God did not just send his son to redeem, he also sent his spirit to assure. So, for everyone who is in Christ, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And what's the spirit doing? He's crying, Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment that can be translated even as Daddy. Like you talk about intimacy. That's the, the tender language of a child to a father. Romans bringing the added clarification, telling us the Spirit bears, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Meaning it's the Holy Spirit that gives our spirit the ability to cry, Abba, Father, which is the indication of what? That we are children of God. Why would we cry this if we are not children of God? It's my son who calls me daddy. It's your child who calls you mommy or daddy. There's an intimacy applied there because that is your child. We have the ability to cry Abba, Father, because he is our father. And it's not by our work, it's by the work of the spirit in our life. Spirit makes it possible for us to to offer up the same cry to God the Father that the Son of God himself offered up the night before his death in the garden. He offered this prayer in the garden the night before his death. Meaning this, God's purpose in redemption wasn't just to secure our sonship. Vitally important that he secured our sonship, but he also assures us of our sonship, our our child of God relationship. So think of it this way. God the Son secured our legal status while the Spirit ensures we experience what it means to be a child of God. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Which leaves us with one closing question. How could anyone who is a child want to live like a slave? How could anyone who is a child want to live like a slave? This is really at the heart of what Paul's asking the Galatians here. This is a Paul's appeal in verses 8 through 11. Paul reminding the Galatian Christians of, of when they were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. But now that they're in Christ, all that has changed. Not only do they know God, they are known by God. It changes everything, church. If you are a Christian, you, are not only, you don't only know God, you are known by God. And he knows you better than you could ever know yourself. So Paul's question in verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? How can you believe a false gospel in other words, why do you want to go back to kindergarten when you've already graduated? Why? It makes absolutely no sense, which is why Paul's overall charge here is for the Galatians Christians to live like who they are. It's like, be who you be. Your sons, your daughters, live like it. You're free in Christ. Live like you're free in Christ. But that's the struggle, isn't it? That's the the ongoing struggle of the believer's life to live like who we are. The struggle to live free in Christ. Doesn't sound like it'd be a struggle, right? You're free. Be free. But it is a struggle positionally free, legally free. You're, you're able to, to go and to do, but practically living as though we're not. Like an animal that spends its entire life in captivity. You take it out, you set it free. It doesn't know what to do. It doesn't know how to, to be free. It's a child settling for mud pies, kind of happy with the, just playing kitchen and baking. It's was like, here's a cake on the table waiting for you. It's yours. Practically speaking, it's the constant temptation that we face to build our self worth, our identity, off things like our works, our performance, how others perceive us, and not by resting in Christ. It's the nature of the world that we live in, church. That that who we are is defined by what we do, defined by, by how we perform, defined by how we're perceived by everybody else around us. Are they successful? What have they done? Have they done these things? And we get wrapped up into it as much as anybody else. And here's the thing works and performance and how others perceive us, those are not bad things in and of themselves. They're not. See, just like the law, Satan takes what is good and he twists it for evil. Why does he do that? To enslave. He takes what is good and he twists it for evil to enslave. See, God intended for the law to reveal our sin and to drive us to Christ. That's the purpose of the law, to reveal our sin and to drive us to Christ, to drive us to the cross. To say, I need Christ. That's what the law is supposed to reveal, which tells us what about the law? It's good. That's a good thing. But what does Satan do with the law? He uses the law to reveal our sin and drive us to despair, to tell us, you're never going to be good enough. Yeah, you've done this and this and this, but yeah, it's not good enough. That's what we feel inside. Those theories of, like, I'm just not good enough. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. Which does what? It enslaves. And that's not the life we have been set free in Christ to live. We're not slaves. We're sons and daughters of God. We're free, meaning we are to work. There's nothing wrong with work, but we're to work in such a way and for such a purpose that is honoring and pleasing to God. I think about Christ. His entire life was a life of work under the law, but not work done in any way to make himself right with God. Rather, it was work that was for the pleasure and the purpose of God. So in the same way, ask yourself, am I working in all that I do for the pleasure and the purpose for God, not in order to, to earn the love of God, not to make myself worthy in his sight, because he can't, he can't, but simply for the pleasure and the joy of God. See, as children of God, we need to understand that our performance as a parent, our performance as a, as a spouse, as, as a Christian, as a friend does nothing, nothing to change God's feelings about us one way or the other. We need to hear this. Get this, church. God will never love you more than, than he did when he chose to save you. And he will never love you less than he did when he chose to save you. Your performance does nothing to change who you are as a child of God. So church, quit letting Satan enslave you with the idea that you have to do more to be more in the eyes of God. You don't. How you're perceived by the world does nothing to dictate how you're perceived by God. So as we leave here this morning, remember who you are. Remember who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God child of God. Let that reality shape everything else about you, because that's what it means to be free. And if you don't identify yourself as a child of God this morning, you can. How? Through faith in Christ alone. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we have much to be thankful for as we contemplate your word this morning. Thankful for your Son and his work of redemption. Thankful for the Spirit who gives us the ability to cry, Abba, Father. Even now, we're reminded that as we pray, we we pray to you, God the Father. Through the blood of God the Son and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that you are God and you are good. We have absolutely zero merit to come before you, yet, not only are we able to come before you, we are known by you, known as sons and daughters, your children. So forgive us, oh Lord, when we don't live like who we are. And we also thank you that your love for us doesn't change even when we fall flat on our face. So Lord, as we as we leave here this morning, may we leave here encouraged and strengthened by the truths of today's text. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.